Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. If you remember, we, we looked at, at the life of Moses from when he was born and, and how the enemy tried to take him out. He was trying to, the enemy was trying to kill all of Israel. And, and keep in mind, um, the enemy has a particular hatred for Israel because God made an unsolicited, unprompted, unconditional promise to Abraham. And unconditional promises are, are they're not exactly rare, but there are a lot of promises that God makes in the Bible. If you do this, I will do this. But he also makes some that says, I'm going to do this. And he made several unconditional promises to Abraham that have never been fulfilled. That is one of the reasons that, that there has to be a millennial reign. Because if there is no millennial reign where God can take the nation of Israel, the, the, the um, descendants of Abraham, and fulfill those unconditional promises, then God made a promise that he didn't fulfill, which makes him a liar, which makes um, Satan king of the universe because he's the king of liars. So one of them, and this is Mo, to Moses' descendant, at the time Moses was born, Pharaoh was inspired by the enemy, kill every male uh, of the Hebrews because we want to wipe them out. It's exactly why Hitler did what Hitler did. Remember, we, we, we talk about the Holocaust, and, and I know there are those that deny the Holocaust. It happened. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of American soldiers that freed those camps, and they saw them. There, there, there are you know, thousands upon thousands of eyewitnesses. But Hitler wasn't even close to the greatest mass murderer that this world has ever known. Stalin probably killed ten times the number of people Hitler did. Mao Zedong killed more than either one of them, probably both of them together. Why does Hitler stand out? Because they made an industry out of murder. Literally built factories to murder people, and they, they murdered more non-Jews than Jews, but they picked on the Jews in particular. It's just now we've built these factories, we need to keep them going. Let's take some other enemies and throw them in there too. But they picked on the Jews for one reason. Satan inspired Hitler. I'm, I'm convinced that at least at some point in Hitler's life, he became possessed. He was demon-possessed. Um, and he tried to wipe out the Jews. Had the Nazis won the war, I guarantee you, they would have tracked Jews down all over the world. That was the aim of the devil using Hitler was to wipe out the Jews. He's always tried to kill the Jews. That's his number one target because he's in a war and we're just collateral damage. He really does not care about you, the devil. He cares, you know, you're, you're just, you don't hit his radar. But he hates the Father. He hates Jesus. He hates the Holy Spirit with a hatred that we can't imagine. And he will do anything he can. He's still trying to win the war. <laughs> but thank God he won't. But, but when, when, when Moses was born, Pharaoh was inspired before Hitler ever was to kill this nation, to kill all these people. And he went after them through 
the midwives and, and they were killing, drowning, exposing Hebrew children. And God inspired um, Moses' mother, put him in the basket, float him down. He came out of the Nile. The Egyptians were, <coughs> they were um, idol worshipers and they considered the Nile River a god. So if you pulled a baby out of the Nile River, this was the god of the Nile giving you a child. And we went through it. Pharaoh, I went this week, because I stayed in Exodus last week, but I went to um, Acts. Chapter 7 is the sermon that, that Stephen preached right before they stoned him to death. And he talks about Moses. And he says that it came into Moses' heart to free his people when he was 40 years old. And that's when he killed the Egyptian for abusing the, the, the Hebrew. And then he went to two other Hebrews who were arguing and they rejected Moses. And Moses went off for 40 years into the wilderness. And when he came back, and, and this is Moses being a type of Christ, they accepted him the second time because he came at that time to deliver them. The first time he came to deliver them, they rejected him. Second time they accepted him. Well, they rejected Jesus the first time. They will not reject him the second time. And they are not looking for Jesus. Believe me, they will tell you, we are not looking for Jesus for one reason. God cannot be a man. And therefore, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. They're not looking for a supernatural Messiah. The Jews are looking for a political Messiah. Someone to end war, bring in peace, let's all go live in nirvana. Well, that's not going to happen, but they will be deceived. But with Moses... This is where I want to start, Exodus chapter 3. This is verse 5 and 6. This is after he's been out in the wilderness for 40 years. He's now 80 years old and he sees the burning bush and he decides, I'm going to go walk up and see what this burning bush is all about. And in Exodus 3 verse 5 it says, speaking to Moses, or God speaking to Moses, says, Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Two things there. Uh, first of all, and if you read uh, Stephen's account from the book of Acts, Stephen says that God introduced himself first, gave his name. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which tells Moses, I'm, from, I'm the God of Abraham. This is where you started. Because you're part of this, these Hebrew children. And Moses knew that he was a Hebrew from early on. It was never a mystery to him. And so God identified himself. But then when he told Moses to take his shoes off, what God was doing, and, and I got this from Jack Hayford, um, he said God was differentiating between what is made by the hands of men and what is made by God. He said, Moses, you're standing here in shoes. You made the shoes. Don't stand on man-made works when you're in my presence. Get your feet off, or your shoes off, and you stand on what I made, ground. And it's the old joke where there, there was a scientist who was, was trying to create life, and they are working furiously trying to create a man-man cell. They've been doing that for 40 or 50 years. Which ought to tell you how ridiculous it is with all of the 
the technology and the, the stuff they have, they're trying to do it. The best minds in the world are trying to do this, and they can't get it done. And yet people believe that it happened in a pool of goo. Like, maybe this ought to tell you something, guys. But, but God and this scientist met face to face, and, and the scientist said, I can do everything you can do. He said, I can create a cell. And eventually, someday, they probably will. I mean, it's just the, the technique, once you understand it and can have all the pieces, it's technical problems after that, but they won't be able to apart spiritual life. They can make, I mean, grass has life, but when the grass dies, it's all gone. There's no life left. So that kind of life man could probably create. Well, that's within our grasp. But God was arguing, this guy was arguing with God, and God said, well, let, let's, let's just put ourselves to the test right now. And the guy said, okay, let me gather up my stuff. And God looked at him and said, no, 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 no. No, you got to go make your own stuff. you got to go create a universe on your own. And then you use that stuff to create life. So I mean, this is an important point. While science may be able to, to redo and refashion stuff to, to imitate the actions of God, all we're doing is playing around with the stuff he made. He made all of this. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you should build me? And where is the place of my rest? If you wish to approach God, we must conform our lives to, the ver to, to, to that verse and to others. God is saying in verse 1, Look, I created this. You want, you want to know where I exist? This is my throne right here. The universe. I'm bigger than the universe. That's what he's telling, telling Moses. Moses, don't come to approach my presence with your works. You come barefoot, bereft of everything that you, that you have. And, and I don't have this in my notes, and I don't remember exactly the address of the reference, but we all know the story. The story of the uh, centurion. Legally, it was, it was against the Jewish law for a, not, for a Gentile to enter the home of a, of a Jew. If they did, that house was unclean. And you had to go through, it was a tough procedure to make it ceremonially clean again. Well, Jesus heard that the, and the, the, he sent, the centurion sent the Jewish elders because he had blessed Israel. And he was seeking after God. And he sent these elders to get Jesus. And as they're coming back, he says, Whoa, don't, no, I don't need you to come to my house. Because he's thinking, I don't want to make Jesus unclean. This man, I've heard his reputation. He's a great man. You don't need to come be physically present to heal my servant. Just speak the word. And Jesus did, and the servant got healed. But the point is, when, when the centurion came to Jesus, he didn't come to Jesus saying, Look, I have blessed your nation. I have done this, and this, and this, and this. Now, what, would, what did the centurion say to Jesus when he first came? I'm not worthy. He came to Jesus humbly with... I may have helped, I may have given money, I may have built things for the, for the temple, I may, may have blessed Jews and, and, and done things materially, but there ain't nothing that I got that you need. You are the source here. You just speak and, and it'll happen. 
I'm nothing. That's what God is trying to tell Moses. Moses, you can't bring anything to this fight. I'm going to put you in the fight. In fact, when Moses later on, we looked last week, when Moses said, uh, Who am I, Lord? His reply, he didn't tell Moses who he was. His reply was, Moses, I'll go with you. That's hillbilly for with you, with you. He said, I'm going to be right there, Moses. He said, and, and, and essentially what he's saying, Moses, it's not about you. There is nothing you can bring to this fight that is going to do anything. So forget about you. You are just my vessel. And it's also interesting when you read um, uh, Stephen's account, he said that Moses was a man of great words and great learning. And yet when Moses came to God, he said, I can't talk. How, what, what, what am I going to do? No, it was just an excuse. He was afraid because the task was bigger than him. And God's response was, well, of course my task is that way. That's why when, when um, Stephen quoted uh, Isaiah 66.1 in this passage about Moses, he said, look, heaven's God's throne. The earth is his footstool. If we're going to approach God, we're going to worship God. You know, Jesus said, you, you need to come and worship me in spirit and truth when he met the Samaritan woman. She said, well, I know that there's a big controversy, and you all say we worship Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain. And Jesus said, well, I am a Jew, and you are supposed to worship Jerusalem. You're wrong about that argument, but that's not the argument I want to have with you. He said, there's a time coming, and now is, when people are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Isaiah 66, 2 tells us how to worship in spirit and truth. He says, for all those things... My hand is made, talking about heaven, talking about the earth. Then what, do you, what kind of house are you going to build me, guys? It's like taking somebody who lives in, you know, going to the queen. And she lives in Buckingham. Well, she has more palaces than, well, she could probably name them, but I can't name them all. And saying, look, we, we've got you a nice little bungalow down here on the, you know, at the east end of in, in Indianapolis. It's like, really? <laughs> Have you seen my palaces? And you're going to offer me this? That's, that's, that's even more so with God. But he says, For all these things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one I will look. This is the person I will single out. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. That trembling at his word doesn't mean we cower and, and, and fear. It means that His Word is our end all. It's where we stop, it's where we end. And everything in between comes from His Word. If His Word doesn't say it, I should not be doing it. If you look at Jesus, He said, I don't do anything lest I hear my Father say it or see my Father do it. Most of what He heard and said, He saw in the Old Testament. We, we think that, that, you know, well, God was communicating with him constantly, talking to him, you know, they were having a conversation in his head. Or God was speaking out loud and Jesus heard him. That did happen. But keep in mind, to be a Pharisee and Jesus, the, the Pharisees were stunned at the knowledge Jesus had. To become a Pharisee, you had to memorize every single word of the first five books of the Bible. That was the requirement to become a Pharisee. Now, I've memorized some scripture. 
been a few years since I did it, and I really couldn't quote you much, but I'm telling you, it takes a lot of effort. I got halfway through Hebrews, and my brain was about to just, it was worn out. Or Hebrews, Ephesians. Let alone Leviticus. Can you imagine memorizing word for word Leviticus? And yet these guys, Jesus astounded them with his knowledge. It was beyond Leviticus. I'm convinced that Jesus in his studies, because he was the perfect man, he, he had it entirely memorized. And when it says that he heard, and heard from God and saw God, he saw it in the scriptures. That's what guided Jesus. And he's saying, who am I going to come to? I'm going to come to that person who is poor in spirit. He has a contrite heart and he trembles at my word. He respects what I have to say. That's, if we're going to worship, that's what God wants from us. John said it, I mentioned it a minute ago. John 4, verse 23 and 24. This is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That truth, Jesus said later on in, in the Gospel of John. He said, my word is truth. That's, what we, that's how we worship God. Remember, we looked at Romans um, 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might be a living sacrifice. All of the things that Moses did. Remember last week we said they, they came into the wilderness, went to Mount Horeb or to Mount Sinai. God gave him the Ten Commandments. That only took a day or so. And then they spent a year to a year and a half learning how to worship God, building the tabernacle. Why in the world would God... Now realize, you know, construction takes a while on things, but that tabernacle did not take that long to construct. It was a pretty simply made thing, other than the fact that it had a couple of billion dollars worth of gold in it. You know? But, but it wasn't a complicated structure to build. Why did it take so long? Because God was showing them how to worship Him. That's what God wanted to get across to them. And what, what the, 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 the worship was you start, and I'm not going to go through all this, but you start at the, the, the curtain that you go in. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am that gate. You only come through with, to me. He was talking about the tabernacle. Then you go to the, the altar where the blood is shed. Everything starts coming to Jesus or coming to the Father through Jesus. I've said it before. There are a billion roads that lead to Jesus. Every person that's ever lived had a different life and a different story and a different route. But if you're going to get to the Father, you, you, you can only get there by going through Jesus. That is the commonality of every Christian that's ever lived, ever will live. We have to go through him, and we have to, the very first thing we have to do is recognize his shed blood. And then even after you recognize his shed blood and you get saved, then you go to the brazen altar and you get your life cleaned up. Which tells me something. You're never done with this process. Not until you either throw this body aside... It's dead, it's gone, it's going to go back to the earth. Remember, we read Psalm 103 out of, out of the uh, message. He loves us even though he knows we're made of mud. We are mud people. 
That's what our bodies are composed of. We're composed of dirt. And you die unless you treat your body with a lot of harsh chemicals. It's just going to go back to dirt. That's it. Everybody. That's what happens. The only two things that will preserve a body. Harsh chemicals that keep bacteria from growing or the glory of God. The glory of God came on Jesus, resurrected a dead body, and it's still living. And it's still functioning perfectly. But, but, but he's trying to tell us, this is how I want you to worship. You do this. Once you, once you start to clean up your life, you can go into the, the holy place and you have the, the, the lampstand, which gives you light. You have the bread of life, which is Jesus. You have the altar of incense, which is your prayers. You're communicating with God. And now that the veil's gone, you can look directly in and see the presence of God. Hebrews, he tells us, you come boldly into my uh, presence. And we, we finished up last week, Exodus 3.12, when, when Moses said, who am I? He said, I will be with you, Moses. That's the, that's the point. I want to teach you how to worship me. Now, let me skip, and this is gonna, I'm going to hopefully tie this in, but I want to jump to Colossians 2, 9, and 10. In Colossians 2, 9, and 10, Paul is talking about Jesus, about the, the deity of Jesus, and the fact that who we are in Jesus. And he says, starting in verse 2, for in him, meaning in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But verse 10 is the astounding verse. And you, meaning us, individually, me individually, us corporately, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We are complete in him. I'll be honest with you, I've read that and I've always wondered... I know sort of what that means, but I know there's a lot more to it. Well, I saw something as I was studying this out this week. I think part of what, and it's not the fullness of what, what um, Paul's saying here, but part of what, what Paul is saying here is he's talking about that trip in the tabernacle. You start at the curtain and you work your way from the altar the, where, where the sacrifice is given to the brazen altar to the table of showbread, the, the menorah, the altar of incense, and then into the Holy of Holies where the ark and the very presence of God is. I think what Paul is saying here in, in part is that trip is complete for you. You don't have to make that trip. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're in the Holy of Holies. Now, naturally speaking, and this is part, we, we addressed this many, many months ago, um, in, in I don't even remember what sermon it was, but there, there are three phases or three uh, periods of sanctification. There's a sanctification that's already done. We are complete in Him. And then there's the ongoing sanctification where I'm trying to clean up my life as we go along. And I will never arrive at that. Now, as Andrew Womack says, I haven't arrived, but at least I'm on the train. I'm moving. And then there's the ultimate sanctification when he comes back. I get to take this trashy old mud body, throw it aside, and I'm going to get a resurrected body that will never age, that will never die. It's so infused with the glory of God that I will look like uh, Adam and Eve did before they fell. You will look at me and not see my physical body. You will just see a body with the glory of God on it. And that's going to be my clothing is the glory. That body will be able to do anything. 
I won't have to wait to have somebody that owns a plane invite me to go fly. If I want to go fly, I'll just, well, guys, I'll be back and be like Superman. I'm off. I'll go fly around a while and come back. I know some of you think riding motorcycles is fun. Wait till you just get to strap on and strap yourself on and go fly by yourself. It's going to be a thrill. That's what he's talking about, though. We have, we have that initial sanctification is done. We are complete. We started at the, at the uh, curtain going into the tabernacle, but we are residing in the Holy of Holies. Paul said it in Hebrews, Come boldly before my throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I've said it and I'll keep saying it. If you've got a pulse, it's a day of need for you. We need him every moment of every day. Amen? Now, all of this temp- tabernacle service that, that was going on, that God was trying to, to explain to them and teach them how to worship him, keep in mind, God did not do all of this because he requires worship. We looked in Genesis. Before Adam and Eve fell, you don't see worship happening in the Garden of Eden. Because God didn't require worship, and, and Adam and Eve didn't require anything. They had no needs. They just walked with God in the, in the cool of the day just to have fellowship. It was all about fellowship. It wasn't about getting my needs met. They needed something. They just spoke to it, and it was there. But after the fall, they have needs. Now, I said earlier that, you know, we, we live in a pretty dark time. And it, it, it breaks my heart to see where our nation has come to. But I also realize that just because Hollywood and, and um, the TV people are expressing this, it looks like this is what everybody believes. You know, I, I never really liked this term, you know, the silent majority. But there is a lot of Christian, wholesome, Bible-believing people out in our country that you never hear from. So our, while, while the culture in Hollywood, the culture in New York, and, and the broadcast industry is pretty rank, pretty devilish, that doesn't necessarily mean it is the overall culture of every American. But they are having a profound effect, and if you don't believe so, listen to how some of the young, how the younger generation, they're buying into some things. But there again, there are a lot of younger, the younger generation, that are realizing my generation who thought, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Let's go party. It's all going to be fun. There'll be no consequences. Fifty years later, we found out there are some consequences to that. You know, Timothy Leary back in the 60s said, well, you know, tune in. Um, <laughs> I forgot to say now, but it basically it was tune in, get high, and drop out. Well, you don't live long when you do that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are finding that out. But, but things are not quite as bad always as, it's, as we see on the surface. But there is precedent. Go back to Numbers chapter 16. And I want to show you something, because this is, this is very telling. And I'm a, you, really, you need to read all of chapter 16 and then chapter 17, but I don't have time to do all of that. And I'm going to pick on, I don't normally, um, 
And, I, and I'm not talking politics, not Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian, or any politics with this. But I, I, I saw a clip of Chelsea Clinton, and I only, I only mention her name because she set in context this, as a Christian, you have to agree with me. And I'm telling you, this is what I'm saying. There are, there are some people out there, and she is symptomatic of a bigger problem. It has nothing to do with left-right politics. It has to do with your, your mindset. But she made, made mention that good Christians could not oppose abortion on demand. And I'm sorry, but that's just wrong. And, and she's, while, while, while she says that, there are entire denominations. I went past the church not too long ago because I'm one of these guys. I grew up in the country. We didn't have road signs when I grew up. We didn't have road names. I lived on Route 1. Where's Route 1? I don't know where. I knew we were where I lived was part of Route 1, but I didn't know what all of Route 1 was. And it was like, well, how many routes are there? I don't know. But sometimes I would just get in a car because it was cheap. I'd go exploring. I explored my entire county. I got lost some days. I got to thinking, I hope I get out to somewhere I know before the sun goes down because I'm not sure I'll ever find my way home. And finally, you drive around enough and you eventually find the landmark. Oh, now I know where I am. And you learn things. Well, I did that here in Indy because I'm not from Indy. And I just went, I had, knew where I was going, and I know about where it is, so I just kind of zigzagged and explored a bit, getting where I needed to go. And I passed like three old mainline denominational church buildings downtown. These are in, in when I say downtown, I'm not talking to right downtown with the skyscrapers, but out in the, 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 the old suburbs from years ago, from old Indianapolis. And these are big, beautiful churches, stately looking. I'm sure at some point they had very alive congregations, very dedicated people built these things. It cost a lot of money even if you built them. Some of them dated probably from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But these three I noticed because in front of all three, they had a very prominent rainbow flag, which tells me, that they believe that everything goes. You come in our church, we will not judge you. We, we are open to everybody in every lifestyle because it's just one person loving another. Who cares if it's two men loving each other? Who cares if it's two men? Who cares if it's you and your dog loving one another? To be honest with you. Now, they don't do that publicly, but believe me, it's out there. It's, it's going on. And it's all about freedom. God just wants us to love one another. Well, Numbers chapter 16 is about the rebellion of Korah. Let me read this passage to you. This is Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. It says, and Moses and Aaron are, are the leaders of Israel at this point. It says, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. You put, take these words and, and think about where we are in the culture war today. In our country and in, in most of the Western world. You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? 
And notice what Moses' reaction was. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I, when I see old churches with rainbow flags in front of them now, my stomach gets a little queasy. And I saw the reaction of some of your all's faces when I mentioned that and what they believe. What did Moses do when he was confronted with something very similar? Moses, who do you think you and Aaron are? You set yourself up, Mr. High and Mighty. Who made you the ruler of this group? Moses could have said, are you stupid? The God of the universe put me in charge. You want to challenge me, you're going to have to challenge him. That's not what Moses did. Moses knew instinctively and, and, and by the Spirit that this is an attack of the enemy. And he hit his face, started praying for him. Now, unfortunately, you read through the rest of, of, of Numbers chapter 16, Korah and all of those that followed him would not listen. They kept that mindset. You're not going to be the boss of me. And I'll be honest with you, part of the, the church, the American church, part of the problem is, is it's an American church. And as a good American, you ain't telling me what to do. The government ain't telling me what to do. The policeman ain't telling me what to do. Ain't none of you people telling me what to do because I'm an American and I'm free. And I'll do what I want to do. And I got a gun that'll back me up. Well, if you want to be stupid, go ahead. Especially, you know, you, you, it might come to a point where you need to resist the, the, the government. I would never advise resisting the police because they have radios and they get help. And if the first one can't whip you, then believe me, they'll, they'll just keep piling on until you end up in cuffs and you're down at jail or dead. So it's best just to submit <clears throat> if they're wrong. And there may come a time, you know, um, depending on if I'm wrong about the rapture, there may come a time when it all, we're, they're coming after all of us and there will be some martyrs. Um, but now we're not there yet. And and. We don't need to resist the government. We just need to, to pray for them and try to transform them. We don't need to be filled with disgust for the churches that have the rainbow flags. We need to pray for them and pray God's mercy on them. Now, they may reject it. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is not to get them to see the light. My job is to shine the light. God didn't say, go make them believe. He said, go preach the word. That's our responsibility, to preach the word and to, to pray for them. Now, Korah wouldn't listen, and God put him to a test. He told Moses, he said, you, you take, and part of their worship practice was take a censer, which is a, a little hollow orb that you put hot coals in, then you dump uh, powdered incense on it, and it smokes. And he said, tell you what, Korah, you line your guys up, I'll line me and Aaron up. We'll take hot coals and we'll pour incense. You get your fire from wherever you want it. Moses got his fire off of the altar where the blood was shed. It was holy fire. They brought strange fire. They just went out to a campfire. Got some hot coals, put them in there, and put incense. Korah and his followers and the people that followed him, disease broke out. And what did Moses do? Now you read through chapter 16. Moses got a little fed up with him at times too. And he challenged them. He wasn't just, you know, perfect, I'm just going to pray for you. No, there were times they pushed his buttons and he lashed out. But in the end, he, when God said, 
Just stand back, Moses. I'll kill them all. We'll start all over. No, Lord, Lord, don't do that. What, what are they going to say in Egypt? You just brought them out here to kill them all? No, we can't do that. Now, when, when you read that, sometimes you think, Moses is more merciful than God is. Keep in mind, the same God that just threatened to kill the entire nation also put it on Moses' heart to intercede for that nation. So it's God inspiring Moses, put, put a demand on me, Moses. Put a demand on my mercy. My anger is stirred. Put a demand on my mercy. I need somebody to put a demand on my mercy or my anger is going to reach out and they'll all be gone. It's God saying, this is part of your worship, Moses. Come pray for them. Come put a demand on my mercy so I can exercise my mercy here. I don't want to kill them all. He killed a bunch. Or, or more precisely, they all were punished a bunch because they decided they had a better way. I don't have to follow. Do you understand this book is nearly four or 5,000 years old? Who would follow a book that old? How do you know it's all right? I tremble at his word. And I accept it as the inspired word of God. As an act of faith, not necessarily an act of my brain and my intellect. It's an act of faith. This is His Word and it will always be His Word to me. And because of that, God will say, okay. Now, you're, you're in your limited little brain, I'm going to show you a few things. Hang on. You know, you ever watch the sci-fi movies where the guy asks to, you know, reveal, this alien, reveal all your knowledge to me and suddenly they're, they're twitching saying, no, no, too fast, too fast. That's exactly what happens sometimes when God tries to reveal stuff to it. It's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, God. I can't handle all this. He, he wants to, though. And if we will come humbly, He will do that. Remember, um, um, well, I'm not going to go there, but in number 17, after this was all over, He told Moses, He said, now look, you take all the tribes. We're going to settle this once for all. You take every tribe. And they all had like a stick or something implement that because they were they were a shepherding group he says you go get all of these rods that represent the authority of all 12 tribes and you lay them all out in front of me these are dead sticks he said you lay them out overnight when you come back to the tabernacle tomorrow i'll tell you who the leader is going to be who's going to be my priest and come before me and aaron's rod budded he brought life to a dead stick and there were almonds on it there was a, a green branch with leaves and fruit overnight from a dead stick. That's, a, that's God saying, you need a sign, there it is. When I hear that, I think of, of, of um, uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 20. And they went out preaching the word, and God confirmed His word with signs following. God doesn't do miracles because He's showing off. He doesn't do miracles through men because He wants everybody to look at that man and say, what a great man of faith and power. No, He's trying to confirm and say, you tremble at my word, let me show you the power in my word. You tell people that I'm the healer, I'll start healing people. You tell people I'm the Savior, I'll start saving people. Whatever we preach from the word, God will back up when, we, when it's in the word. He's just looking for vessels to say, and that is our worship. That is our act of worship. Think of this, Matthew 4, verse 10. This is when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He says, Jesus said to him, <clears throat> excuse me, 
away with you. Or King James says, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It's the service. That's what God was showing Moses and the children of Israel in, that, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Yes, we focus in on the, on the Ten Commandments and in all of the commandments, because remember, it's not just ten. There's over 600 commandments. If you break one, you've broken them all. The point of the, of, of, of the commandments is not to show us how to live. It's to show us that we can't live. We're dead. We used to say it when I was part of an evangelism team, and we went out and made cold calls. Boy, that'll... You just walk up to a stranger's door and knock on it. That's nerve-wracking. We would remind ourselves, look, when you go to talk to these people, you just have to keep it in mind. Remember, they're deaf, they're blind, they're dead. How do you communicate with them? You don't. You just go preach the Word and you let God communicate it with them. That's what you do. Because we, sometimes we think, well, this person won't listen. Of course they're not going to listen. They're dead. Dead people can't hear. I challenge you, go to any funeral home, walk up to a corpse and start talking to it and see how many of them respond. Your great oratory won't get a response. But when you speak life and God brings life, then they can respond. All we're called to do is worship God by preaching His Word. Paul said it in Philippians 3.3. We are the circumcision. We are the true believers who worship God in the Spirit. Because of that, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. It's not about you. It's not about what you can say and how you can say it. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's how we worship Him in spirit. And 2 Corinthians 6.1, same thing. We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now this is where I want to close, and I'm going to try to do this really quickly. This is where we hear this, don't receive the, the, the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? Literally, it's the Greek word kinos. And it means, when it's speaking to men, it means to be empty-handed, to not have a gift. My wife is a, is a um, she's a rural person. She's, she's like, if, if she'd have had a math mind, she'd have been an engineer. Because she likes things lined up in order. This is how you do things. And you get her out of order, starts to gnaw on her a little bit. My son's the same way. He's an engineer. One of the things that her mother taught her, drilled it into her girl's head. And of the four girls, Gina's the only one that does it. Why? She likes that rule. It says, when you go to someone's house, you take a hostess gift. And I'm telling you what, I've been more than one time, we've been heading to somebody's house, and I know it shocks you, but we've been running a little bit late. And she would say, I don't have a gift. we got to stop at Walmart real quick. We don't have time to stop. We're already late. No, 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 no. i got to have a gift. That's what Paul's saying here to the Corinthian church. If you're going to receive the grace of God, when you come up to people, don't come up empty-handed. You need a hostess gift. You need something in your hand. What do I have in my hand? Exactly what God had with Moses. Come to the Red Sea. Moses said, Lord, thanks a lot. 
We've got the sea on one side, the mountains over here, and the army of Egypt over here, and we're about to all die. And God looked at him. He said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And I know what Moses thought. i got a stick. Stretch it out over the, over the water. Moses stretched it out of the water, and the breath of God moved the waters and dried the land, so they walked over on dry land. Moses did not stand back and turn to the children. He said, did you see how I held that stick? Wow, ain't I something? No, I can tell you what Moses thought. Whoa, look what happened when God told me to hold out that stick and I held it out. Look what God did. Moses was amazed at what God had. God is telling us, don't accept the grace of God with nothing in your hand. When you get his, his grace, I've put things in your hand. Worship me by going with my word. Pray for people. Speak to them. I love this. When I looked up the definition, it says metaphorically or, or, or descriptively. The nature of man, this means a man's nature has no purpose. It's destitute of spiritual wealth. It's, it speaks of a person who boasts of his faith as a superior possession, and yet it has no fruit. That's what James says. You say you have faith without works? I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, what works is he talking about? Miracles? Great, great works of faith and power? No, he's primarily talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which if you read it, it really easily could be translated, the fruit of the Spirit is love, semicolon. And that love is expressed as patience and kindness and joy and all of the others. Because that's what John said. John, was, John had a greater revelation of Jesus than anyone, the Apostle John. And at the end of his life, he, he reminds me, well, he was greater than, than Churchill, but I remember the story of Churchill when, when he, right towards the end of his life, they, he went to, I don't remember, a university or a high school or some kind of school, and was going to give a commencement speech. And this is, this is one of the greatest orators that's ever lived. I mean, he took an entire nation that had nothing and inspired them to stand up to the strongest military power in the world at the time. And he got up to speak, and this was his entire speech, and I may have the number of these, but I'm close. This was his entire speech. Never, never, never quit. Sat down. He was done. That's what he's saying here. Love never quits. Love never fails. Love is what we have in our hands and it's what we bring. Our nature is to love and to bless and to preach to people. It also means when it's talking metaphorically about the, the activities of men, it's talking about labors or acts which result in nothing if it's fruitless They're, or, or in, if it's vain. They have no fruit. They're without effect. They have no purpose. You watch people that, that have, have a, a, a Christ, a non-Christ-centered religion. It's just, they're, it's like running on a treadmill. You get lots of exercise, you do lots of work, you go nowhere. God says, I, in fact, I've told this story. I had a guy I once used to go to church with. He looked like he worked out 20 hours a day. I mean, he had the most massive upper body I've ever seen. Gave another friend of mine a hug one day after morning prayer and broke a rib. Just from a hug, just goof, goofing around. I mean, the man was huge. And people would ask him, where do you work out? And he said, I don't belong to a gym. 
Well, how did you get so big? He worked at a company that cut, custom cut rebar to, to put in, in um, concrete. And he would start anywhere from an eighth of an inch piece of rebar up to a half inch piece of rebar. And they were 50 feet long. And he would grab some of the smaller ones. He would grab five to ten of them in a bundle with both hands and flip them to roll them off of this rack over to where he could cut them. And all day long, he's taking hundreds and hundreds of pounds of rebar and just flipping it, whipping it like a snake. Over the years, he built this massive body. That's us. When, when, when he says we're having no purpose, we need to build up our spirits by doing the works of the ministry. Not going to a gym and working out. You can get a better spiritual strength and a better looking spirit by doing what God says to do rather than sitting around and doing these things in isolation. That's why I said several weeks ago when it says that God shows us things to come, He shows us by interacting with other Christians and by taking our gifts and going out into the world. If we don't take our gifts to the world, what good are we? This is not supposed to be a bless me club. It's supposed to be go and make disciples club. That's how we worship God. And I'm going to finish with this scripture and, and we'll, we'll pick up here next week. 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm only going to read the first part of verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We always quote that scripture when we talk about marriage. You know, it's one of the things as a pastor, I, if people come to me and they say, will you, will you perform our marriage ceremony? I will tell them, maybe. I never say yes right off the bat. And my maybe is you've got to come meet with me one time for a counseling session because that's what I'm going to determine. Are you both Christians or neither one of you Christians? If neither one of you Christians, I don't have a problem marrying you. I will do it. But if one of you is a Christian and one of you is not, I can't because I have a command from Jesus. Do not be unequally yoked. But it has a lot more to do than just marriage. It's talking about people spiritually. Don't hook up with someone that's unequal to you. Don't, don't, we go out and fellowship with unbelievers, but we don't go out and join ourselves to unbelievers. When I go out in a crowd, and, and there are times when I have done this, I, when I was teaching, I would go to teachers' parties. I didn't like them, because everybody was drinking, and after a half hour, everybody's, they're all a little high, and they're all talking weird, they're getting kind of loose, they're doing stupid things, but I wasn't there to join in the frolicking with them. I was there to be a witness to them, hoping that I would have an opening somewhere to say something that might key a thought to somebody that down the road that would be a seed that could grow and God could use it to bring them to know Him. There's a big difference. That's, I, I could have gone, joined in, had a drink, got drunk with them, partied with them, done just as stupid of things as they did. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. Proved that in my youth. But that was yoking, that would have been yoking myself to them and working for the same purpose. Because yoking talks about having two oxen tied together to do work. I don't, now, we can yoke together to do a secular job. I taught with teachers. I had teachers that were unbelievers. They didn't, I mean, we were, we, we were 
so far apart politically, socially, spiritually. They had, we had very not, almost nothing in common, but I could teach together with them. We had a common purpose there. But I was always on guard when they would talk to me to find an opening, to say, just to drop a hint. Same way with my students. I never got up and preached the Bible to them, but occasionally, especially when they know you're a Christian, or they know you're a pastor, I'll say, well, what do you believe about this? And I was always careful to say, doesn't matter what I believe. Comes down, what does God say? I'd always take it back to the Bible. What's the Word say? Because what I believe, because believe me, I can be wrong. I can remember at least one occasion where I was. Thank you. Some of you were slow on that laugh. <laughs> I'm glad you weren't real fast. But I'm serious. I've got some tapes of when I preached 30 years ago. And, oh, my Lord. You just you turn red and you think, who let me in a pulpit? And I'm sure if I live another 30 years, I may look back on some today and think, wow, I, it's a wonder I even knew how to get out of the rain. We grow. But we need to constantly keep in our mind. It's an act of worship for me to go out and, and, and fellowship with these people. I have to be open for an opportunity to sow a word. I, my goal when I was young in the Lord, my goal was to bring them all the way to the end and lead them in a sinner's prayer. And I finally realized that just some, I just, I had people prayed for me just so I would leave or pray with me, not for me. Some of them didn't pray for me. They cursed me. But, but I had people that prayed with me, but they only did it so this weirdo would get off my porch. It's better. Just go. Find out if there's something you can pray for them about. Can you bless them? Share a little bit of word. And then leave. A, I'll tell you, and, and I, I, this will be my last statement. I told you, you know, we were joking the other day, because she has this habit, we, we end up, our, when we go out to eat, our waitress or, or waiter, we end up talking a lot with them. And, and I usually, I can't help it, I'm a cut up. Uh, life is serious, and I don't like it being serious. So I joke, I joke a lot. And I, we, actually, we were out last night, and, and uh, we were, Gina and I were having a disagreement with the waitress there, and the waitress took Gina's side, and I looked at her, I said, I'm taking one of the two quarters that I gave you for a tip, I'm taking one of them back. And, and Gina looked at her, and she said, can you believe he's a pastor? And she, her eyes got a little big, she said, not really. But here's my point, I told Gina later, I said, you're going to have to quit telling these girls and these guys that I'm a pastor, or that we're Christians, because I have a rule. If we pray over our meal and people see us, that affects the tip I give. If I tell somebody, if I witness to or ask a waitress, can you know, like, something seems to be wrong. Is there something I can pray for you about? And they share it with me. I'm really careful. Then I don't go the 15 to 20 percent. I go 30, 40. I've gone 15. Sometimes I've gone 100 percent. Well, I've had one little girl, and I'm not bragging on me. I'm just saying I, I, I've heard too many stories when Christians go out to eat and they leave a track with no money, and that's the tip. Well, I'm giving them eternal life. No, you're giving them a sour taste about Christians. These people work hard, and if they know you're a Christian, bless their socks off. What's the difference whether you give a $6 tip or a $15 tip? 
Not much to me. Six bucks, seven bucks, that's not a lot to me. I'm not going to, my life's not going to collapse over seven dollars. But I guarantee you, if 20% is six dollars and you leave three fives, that'll get that person's attention. And the next time they think about a Christian, they may think of you and think, I remember that person was a Christian. And they blessed me. They were generous. And it, then when someone else comes and sows a seed, they might be a little bit more receptive. Those are all acts of worship. Why? Because everything we do is an act of worship. I just want to make sure I'm bound at the right altar. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.